bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so simply by logging on to our website, michaeltkeene.com. During the period of Dutch and English settlement, New York City was one of the nation's largest urban centers for the slave trade. In the colony, as many as 40% of the population were slaves. Slaves had no choice of residence, were treated like a commodity, and even in burial, were denied equal access. At the end of the 17th century, Trinity Church formally banned blacks from its cemetery in Lower Manhattan. And the African burial grounds were the result of this process. And perhaps most shocking of all, if even in a limited way for a while, the access to New York City's Potter's Field, Hart Island, was even part of the discrimination process. Our very special guest today is Tom Angotti. He is Professor Emeritus of Urban Policy and Planning at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, the City University of New York. He was the founder and director of the Hunter College Center for Community Planning and Development. And his most recent book is Zoned Out. And Professor Angotti, thank you very much for being our guest on Talking Heart Island. How are you this morning? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's our pleasure. why don't we begin with a little bit of your telling us about your, uh, your, your professional career, uh, especially in the area of urban policy and, and in planning? Um, yes, I have taught at various universities, uh, most recently at Hunter College and the Graduate Center, uh, from which I retired a couple of years ago. Um, before that, I have worked as a professional planner, um, a senior planner with the city of New York, um, with the state of Massachusetts. Um, and I've, uh, traveled and worked around the world. I've been on a number of Fulbright, um, 
Fulbrights in uh, a series of countries. Um, I lived and worked in Italy for two years as an urban planner, and I wrote actually my first book there. So I have a pretty broad uh, professional background and experience and have done quite a bit of traveling, lived in Italy, lived in Peru for two and a half years. I was in the Peace Corps and worked as a, an organizer, organizing rural cooperatives. And this was in uh, South America? Yes. Mm-hmm. And you spent, is it a two-year tour, essentially, in, in the Peace Corps? Yes, it's uh, two years, and I stayed an extra six months. How did you end up at, uh, well, you, you've taught a, a variety of different uh, universities. Uh, uh, how did you end up at Hunter? Uh, well, partially by, by accident. Um, after having lived in Italy for a couple of years, I came back and heard that there was a, an open position at Hunter College I went in, interviewed, and was hired for a one-year temporary position. Then um, uh, Columbia, the Columbia Urban Planning Program in the School of Architecture snatched me for four years, and I taught there. And it wasn't until uh, 15, 20 years later that uh, I came back to Hunter and um, uh, that's where I founded the Center for Community Planning and Development, which has worked with community-based organizations throughout New York City, developing community plans, organizing in order to fight uh, official plans, uh, uh, to oppose large projects that um, particularly had a, um, a potentially negative effect in low-income communities of color. Can you give us a, a, some examples of that? Uh, well, yes, I worked with uh, the Environmental Justice Alliance on its opposition to the concentration of uh, waste transfer stations in communities of color. And uh, I also work with the Atlantic Yards on the Atl Atlantic Yards project with an organization called Develop Don't Destroy Brooklyn that uh, was was fighting this mega project and was not ultimately successful. But that, uh, that was uh, a very large and lengthy battle. Uh, and I worked with uh, very minimal funding uh, and many um, highly motivated students. To, to prepare alternative plans and strategies and critiques. You know, you came onto my radar screen, so to speak, when I read an article uh, that was printed in Gotham Gazette uh, titled, Burial Ground Bears Witness to a Segregated City. Could you talk about that article a little bit? It involved Trinity Church and African burial uh, grounds. When... Um when the um, federal government began building its uh, new federal building in downtown Manhattan, and uh, they selected their site and they began the process of construction, 
um, even though there had been information available and knowledge of the previously existing African burial grounds on the site. Um, and these were largely invisible to the uh, planners of the in the federal government as well as in local government, just as the African slaves and African people were invisible um, in earlier years when that burial ground was created. It, it was a spontaneous burial ground because they were not allowed to be buried in the official cemeteries. So they were forced to bury their uh, dead outside uh, the walls, outside of Wall Street, uh, which was then the the perimeter of uh, the city of New York. Uh, and that's how the burial grounds got created. So they were never formally organized. And uh, as the city grew, uh, such sites became uh, opportunities for real estate development. And they were built on. In lower Manhattan, there were no traces of the African burial ground uh, if you were to walk around. Uh, however, um, local historians knew about it. Uh, um, uh, preservationists in Harlem knew about it. And um, people began to organize and say, this is an opportunity to preserve a piece of our history that's been hidden. And uh, there was a campaign they convinced then Mayor uh, Michael Bloomberg to support the project, and um, uh, a piece of the site was set aside to create a, to commemorate the burial ground um, and to um, create the museum, a very wonderful museum that exists now. So that's how that's how it came about. But it's a it's an emblematic story of how the history of slavery and slaves and former slaves um, gets no currency in the preservation community. Um, and when it comes to managing, regulating, controlling development. Uh, so this is repeated, for example, in many cases um, in Harlem, um, known throughout the world as a center of uh, African-American uh, culture and history, a rich history. Yet there was a, um, a large campaign to preserve uh, the Audubon Ballroom where Malcolm X was assassinated uh, that lost. And it lost because the uh, criterion for historic preservation for the Landmarks Commission is the quality of the building. And slaves happen to live and work and congregate in buildings that were by European standards um, not of high quality in their physical uh, characteristics. So so there are very few sites in 
uh, low-income communities of uh, historic sites within low-income communities of color. So even with, the, and again, the uh, point of the article, Burial Ground Bears Witness to a Segregated City, uh, prior to uh, your interview, I was talking with my audio engineer, and we were amazed that cemeteries were segregated. Um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar, but during the AIDS epidemic in New York during the 1980s, 1990s, of those who died of AIDS who were buried on Hart Island, they were actually buried in a separate section of Hart mm. Island, and they were buried 14 feet deep, as if somebody who died of AIDS had to be buried deeper than someone else because of the AIDS virus somehow escaping. And so you just wonder about the mentality that, that goes into some of these things. Yeah, defying all all science uh, about the AIDS virus. Right. The um, <clears throat> You write about and talk about, and you, you've touched on it, the role of real estate displacing African-Americans, and I guess the African-American uh, burial ground is one example. Are there other, and, and also the ballroom where Malcolm X was assassinated, uh, are there other examples that are going on today that you're finding you have to fight to not allow or to allow certain things from occurring? Well, yes. Um, there are neighborhoods all over the city that um, can't get a hearing in the land, at the Landmarks Commission because, and there's, a, there's, there's actually um, a latent movement, and there has been for decades, to have cultural landmarks designated. That is, um, a landmark does not require a substantial uh, physical building in order to qualify as a landmark. Uh, so there are, there are many plazas, there are many places that have, had, um, have hosted uh, historic meetings. Um, I, I remember one of the earliest recommendations was Lucky Corner up in East Harlem, where there have been historically many labor rallies and many uh, uh, anti-racist uh, uh, demonstrations. But it's a, um, it's a, it's a pretty nondescript uh, intersection at this point, or a plaza. And uh, it would not qualify as an official landmark. Uh, so it says it says something about our histories, uh, which ones are more important. Well, exactly. You know, I'm uh, originally from upstate New York, and it's somewhat uh, comical, really. You can go into most small towns, and there's a plaque in town, you know, George Washington slept here kind of thing. Right. And, and so... But what you're talking about, obviously, is a history much richer and deeper than where somebody happened to have slept for the night. Um, let's talk a little bit about Heart Island. It's not exactly uh, in this discussion, except that right now the Heart Island is uh, controlled by the Corrections Department and has been for— 100 years or more. This is where the Rikers Island prisoners are taken to bury the unclaimed dead on Hart Island. Uh, there's a, a movement afoot to have the uh, 
oversee of the island taken over by the Parks Department. Could you talk about that a little bit? Because I thought you had some interesting comments about how things could change if it was the Parks Department, you know, in control uh, rather than the Corrections Department. Well, uh, it's difficult uh, to know. Uh, One can only look at the um, traditional role of the Parks Department. It's to um, allow for places of recreation uh, to run parks. They're not particularly uh, well-skilled or tasked at preserving history. Uh, We could take one example, which is uh, the recent uh, community opposition from many communities of color to the statues, uh, for example, in Central Park of the, um, I can't remember the name offhand, but the uh, white physician who experimented uh, on women of color and his statue is in Central Park, and there's there was just a major campaign to remove it. Uh, there were all there was, and this there was also the uh, uh, and and that's Park's jurisdiction. Uh, other agencies are also similarly passive when it comes to honoring uh, people in history who represent for uh, many immigrant groups and people of color, the oppressors, Um, there was a big campaign, uh, of course, against the Columbus statue in Columbus Circle. Um, It wasn't successful, but um, there there were many immigrants from Latin America who felt that... uh, uh, Columbus and Native American groups who felt that Columbus was a symbol of colonialism. So anyway, to get back to Hart Island, uh, it's hard to know what parks would do, but since their since their um, central uh, focus is recreation, I would imagine they would move towards making as much of the park available for recreation for a fairly intensive use to justify the capital funds that would be required in order to build there. And that brings up the question whether its history will be preserved. Will it be preserved in a tiny plaque that you look at Uh, as you get off the boat and enter the island, or will it be preserved in a significant way in some some kind of uh, more intensive, uh, deep history, not only of uh, the the way that uh, poor people are buried differently, they not only live differently, they are buried differently and in different ways, but also how that has been a consistent um, piece of the city's history. So there's a there's a potential for creating a an educational space there. Um, 
but the, then the question would be uh, whether it's going to be a tiny plaque or whether it can be a significant way to educate. Um, you know, and the other the other theme that it seems to me that um, the African burial ground uh, brought up and Heart Island will bring up is to what extent is uh, this part of a, a larger pattern of displacement? So the history of uh, the slaves and former slaves, uh, black people in New York City has been one of serial displacement from lower Manhattan up through to Harlem and then uh, to parts of Brooklyn and uh, and then the suburbs. Uh, and displacement has been a fundamental part of that history, of the history of black people. And so uh, displacement occurs in life and in death. And how how can we learn from from that history? How can people learn um, uh, about our history in this way, in a in a complicated way? Um, and so I think there's a, a real potential potential for um, for doing that. Whether it will actually happen, I think will almost entirely depend on the extent to which there's a citizen engagement, a real citizen engagement, not a token one, um, where people are allowed to have a voice in, and express ideas about how that history should be treated. Uh, you know, it shouldn't necessarily also be assumed automatically that the best thing to do with Hart Island or any other piece of land that has been um, neglected over years, that the best option is development. Um, that's the tragedy of post 9 11 uh, planning in downtown Manhattan. Um, the immediate solution that met very little opposition was to rebuild bigger and better. Um, and that was that discourse uh, crowded out the voices of many of the families of the, the victims who said, Oh, wait a minute. Um, that's disrespectful to the, to the the lives that were lost, and uh, what eventually came out of that was a lot of protests and organizing by some of the families, and um, and a memorial. But the the big question is, why does it have to be dictated by real estate development? That is, you have to use every patch of land in order to build something on. And, and uh, 
and so, and so I think that that's uh, that ought to be the question. Maybe Hard Island is best left um, in its current condition, and and maybe there's a lesson to be learned there that people can, as visitors, understand that lesson if they are guided through it um, by um, by learning the history. Uh, the African burial ground could well have, the, the federal government could well have canceled its plans for its office building and could well have said, you know, this is so important that we're going to turn it into a large museum and preserve uh, the remains, even if it means empty spaces above ground. Symbolically, that can be quite powerful in a city that is um, a city of towers and concrete and, and asphalt. Fascinating. Uh, Professor Angadi, I can't thank you enough for uh, being a guest. You know, I found and, and am finding that discussing the history of a mass graveyard that practically no one knew about opens up a whole nother vista of history. Uh, it tells us so much more than what we think we would find, you know, by just focusing in on this particular cemetery. So anyway, again, I thank you very much for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website located at www.michaeltkeen.com and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Talking Heart Island.